Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is the word of the Lord. So the great author Charles Dickens opened his masterpiece of Tale of Two Cities with this famous description. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. Kind of strange how that might even describe our own times today. But right from the outset, what Dickens is doing is he's letting his readers know that this is going to be a novel of great contrast. Wisdom versus foolishness. Belief versus faith. Doubt versus skepticism. Light versus dark. Hope versus despair. Love versus hate. The blessings of heaven versus the horrors of hell. And really, while the surface title, A Tale of Two Cities, sort of points to London and Paris, if you've read the novel, you're familiar that part of the story takes place in London, part of it takes place in Paris. That's just the surface meaning of the novel. The real meaning of the novel, and you're welcome for the English lesson, the real meaning of the novel is a contrast between not London and Paris, but London and Paris as they are versus what they could be. So the two, two cities in view here are what's re- real, what's the reality, and what's the hope? And really, this is captured well at the end of the story as the, the heroic character, Sidney Carton, is about ready to give his life up for his friends. He catches a glimpse of the other city. And he thinks to himself, I see a beautiful city and a brilliant people rising from this abyss. And in their struggles to be truly free, in their triumphs and defeats through long years to come, I see the evil of this time and of the previous time of which this is the natural birth, gradually making expiation for itself and wearing out. And it's when Sidney gives his life to love and to sacrifice, he's actually able to glimpse this city. He moves away from being cynical and washed up, a washed-up lawyer to doing something heroic and noble. And so when he has this moment of freedom, he can see and he can start to hope again. There's a beautiful city that is to come, a beautiful city that is to be realized where people love and serve and sacrifice. This is the heart of Dickens' novel, this hope. 
And really, like all good art, Dickens masterly confronts us with these questions, with some of the deepest and most important questions, some of the deepest and most important longings that we can have. Because over and over, the novel raises this question, who are you going to be? And what kind of society are we going to be? Or maybe to ask the question a little differently, who do you long to be? And what kind of community do you long to be a part of? And really here at the end of Galatians, we're confronted with some similar questions. Who are we going to be? And what kind of church community are we going to be? So in the flow of the book, Galatians, the end of Galatians 4, sort of serves as both a cap to the argument that was sort of one long argument of chapter 3 and 4, and as a transition into the major theme of freedom that we're going to see in chapter 5. And so verses 21 through 31 give us a sense of what is at stake and all that Paul has been talking about and all this talk about the gospel versus performance. Here's what at stake. Freedom. Spirit-given, spirit-empowered freedom or slavery. Life-depleting, joy-swallowing, flesh-driven slavery. Who are you going to be? Who are we going to be? People formed and shaped in freedom or people formed and shaped in slavery? Are we going to be a community defined by freedom who in turn is defined by wisdom and faith and hope and love? Or a community defined by slavery to sin, slavery to our performance, slavery to foolishness and skepticism and despair and even hatred? And really, do you long for freedom? Like as you sit in your seat right now and you think about the contours of your life and your own heart, would you say, hey, I long for freedom? And would you say that you long to be a part of a community that walks in freedom? That's what the end of chapter four sort of holds out for us. That's what Paul kind of is a a last sort of parting shot before he's going to switch ideas here, holds out a view of a community to the Galatian church. And next week, we're going to begin looking more closely at the theme of freedom. We're going to spend several weeks sort of unpacking what Paul has to say about freedom and what it means to guard freedom and walk in freedom. But this morning, I just want to do something simple. I want us to be called to freedom. I want to put some questions before us. I want to sort of give us a picture and, and say, hey, who do we want to be? What kind of church, what kind of community do we want to be? Yeah, individually, yes, but I'm talking community together. Who do we want to be? Do we want to be a people of freedom? Or do we want to be a people given over to slavery? So from our passage this morning, if I may borrow from our good good friend Charles Dickens, let's reflect on a tale of two communities, one given over to slavery and one given over to freedom. So moving into our text, at the end of chapter four, we see Paul once again, one final time, wants to bring Abraham into the picture. Wants to use the life of Abraham as an example to teach some important truth. And this time he highlights the birth of of Abraham's two sons. This is what verses 21 through 23 tell us. Tell me you who desire to be under the law. Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So this is going back to Genesis 16. And if you go to Genesis 16, you will read 
about how even though God had promised Abraham and Sarah that he was going to give them a son, he's going to give them an heir, they began to despair. They began to doubt that promise. And Sarah decides she's going to take matters into her own hands. And so she gives Abraham her servant, Hagar, and says, hey, bear a a son, bear a child with my servant, Hagar. And so Abraham listens to the voice of his wife, and he conceives a son with Hagar, Ishmael. And, And here what we see is we see two people, Abraham and Sarah, deciding that they're going to take matters into their own hands. Rather than trusting the promise of God, they're going to try to fulfill that promise themselves. Rather than waiting on the Lord, rather than trusting in the Lord's goodness and faithfulness to them, they decide, no, we're going to do this on our own. And here's what's crazy. If you go back into Genesis, Genesis 15, right before this episode, we see God entering into this covenant with Abraham. And there's this incredible ceremony where God pledges his faithfulness to Abraham. He said, I am going to keep this promise. And just a few verses later, we see them taking matter into their own hands. Unless we judge Abraham and Sarah, are we not just as fickle? Can we not be just as full of unbelief? We can experience these incredible things with the Lord. And then the next day we're doubting God's goodness in our life. But there's a principle here of taking matters into their own hands, relying on their own ability, their own performance to get what God had promised. And yet, despite this unbelief, God still keeps his promise to Abraham. He still allows Sarah to conceive, and Isaac is born, the child of promise, the promised heir, the promised son. And so what Paul does is he takes this contrast between Hagar, the the child born to Hagar and the child born to Sarah, and he makes a spiritual application. He does some allegorical instruction here. And this is what we read in verses 24 and 25. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So what Paul does is he compares Hagar to Mount Sinai. What is going on? Why is he making this comparison? What's What's sort of the connection there? Well, again, if we reflect on the fact that Hagar bore a son with Abraham as a result of Abraham and Sarah taking matters into their own hands, here is a son born of flesh-driven, performance-driven mentality. This is them trying to get the job done in their own strength, going about it in their own means. And as we've seen, the law is also based on a principle of human performance. Keep the law and you will live. If you do this, you will live. And this reflected the attitude of the Jews at the time. Both the Jewish nation and these Jewish Christians that had come into the church of Galatia were saying, hey, you got to keep the law. If you want to experience righteousness and blessing and favor from God, you have to perform. You have to keep the law. But as we saw several weeks ago, the law was never intended to do this. The law was never intended to make us righteous. It was never intended to be the way that we get blessing from God. It was meant to show us that we're not righteous, that we're sinful, that we need the grace of God, that we cannot perform. So the principle before us here is one of performance and taking matters into our own hands. Hagar bore a son who was not the heir of God's promise. She bore a son that was not the promised son. And because she was a slave, the child that was born to her was also a slave. The Jews 
chasing righteousness and blessing through the law, were not experiencing the promise of God. No, they were being enslaved, being enslaved to their performance, enslaved to sin. And so the the point Paul is making here in this allegory is this. Performance doesn't lead to freedom. Performance doesn't bring about the promise that God has made. It does not achieve blessing and righteousness. It only leads to slavery. And performance not only enslaves individuals, but communities. He says that that Hagar and her offspring are the present Jerusalem. He's, he's got his sight set on the entirety of the Jewish community. So Jerusalem was the capital of Israel, sort of represented the pinnacle of Jewish society and Jewish religious practice. And he says, all those people, for all the religious worship, for all the good things that they are doing, they're enslaved. Present Jerusalem is enslaved because of their performance, because they are taking matters into their own hands. A community that does not produce freedom. It does not shape people in freedom and righteousness and blessing in life, but it shapes people in slavery. And look, all communities who live by performance create people, shape people, disciple people, not in freedom, but in slavery. Not in promise, but performance. So Paul is holding out to the Galatian church. Are you a community of freedom? Are you a community like the present Jerusalem, bound in slavery? Who are we going to be? First city, what kind of church are we going to be? Are we going to be a community that rests and trusts in promise? Or are we going to be a community bound in slavery because we're trying to take matters into our own hands? So, the things that I want to hold out for us this morning, look, none of these things are new. We, we talk about these things regularly. We've talked about these things throughout the series multiple times. But once again, I just want us to take a moment and take stock of who we are and, and how we as a community are living and what are we being shaped in? What's driving us? What defines us? Because we need to regularly be reflecting on these truths. We can't just go, okay, I heard it once and I got it down. No, it is good to reflect and good to consider. Are we being shaped by promise or are we being shaped by performance? And here's some of the contours of this. Are we earning God's favor? Look, I know most of you in this room and you're way too evangelical to say that you you earn God's favor or earn salvation. You would never tell me that to my face. I would never say that. We wouldn't claim it. It's not in our doctrinal statement. Yet how many of us are living our lives earning God's favor, trying to earn God's favor? How many of us think that if I don't sin in a particular way, or if I'm good enough, if I read my Bible enough, if I pray enough, if I come to Sunday worship enough, if I give enough, if my marriage is good, if my parenting is good, if my kids are well-behaved, then God will like me that God will pour out his favor on me, that that God will let good things happen to me. And here's what's going on in our heart. Let's just be honest about this for a second. What we're doing in that moment is we're saying this, you know, I can't really trust that God is good and that he's faithful and that he loves me and that I am accepted in Christ. So I got to give God a reason to to bless me. I've got to give him a reason to like me. And so our unbelief 
causes us to do and do and do and perform and perform to try to earn God's favor so we can sort of work up this subjective sense inside that God likes us. But again, you know what we're really doing? We're trying to come to this place where we're okay with ourselves. But we're trying to feel good about ourselves. So in, in this really weird, twisted sense, us trying to earn the favor of God is really trying to earn our own acceptability in our own eyes. And we rest on our performance. And we think that if I feel good about myself, that equates to how God sees me. And so we seek to earn God's favor. We, we, we over and over and over do the list of things that we tell ourselves is going to get us there. And look, that's not freedom. Friend, that's not freedom. How do I know? How do we know that? Because what happens when things don't go as we plan? What happens when we don't perform well enough? Or the good we think God is going to give us because we did check all the boxes doesn't happen. We get angry. We start to feel a sense of angst, maybe anxiety inside. We start to doubt God's goodness. God, I did all these things. Where are you? We start to fall into despair. We start to experience this, this sense of alienation from God. Instead, instead of running to him because he loves us and he's our father, we run away from him. Oh, that's not freedom. That's not life. It doesn't lead to joy. But this is what happens when we try to take matters into our own hands and earn God's favor. Closely connected to this is trying to grow in godliness through our own self-made and community-made rules. So you see, how often do you get frustrated with how slow growth in godliness can be? Like you, you, you're like, man, it's been 15 years and I'm still struggling with this sin. I thought I would be much more mature. I mean, some of us were just so frustrated. It seems like, man, I am, it is just a slow roll. I'm like on the 50-year plan of sanctification. Hey, guess what? It's going to be a slow roll until Jesus comes back or he calls you home. <laughs> but, but here's what happens when we get frustrated in those moments. We start to grab for whatever we can to speed up the process. Man, I need a quick fix. I need something that's going to help me. So this is what we do. We go and we look for a book. We get on Amazon or we go to Barnes & Noble if those still exist but we go and we look, five steps for battling sin, seven steps to a better marriage, 12 steps to perfect kids. And maybe it's not exactly that on the nose where you're looking for a step program to those things, but we're looking for tactics. We're looking for strategies. We're looking for things to fix what's broken in us. And then what happens? We grab the book we experience a little bit of success and we start telling all of our friends and everybody in the church about this book and then enough people get a hold of this book and all of a sudden this com a community becomes bound to the rules of this book. And we start judging our quality of parenting, judging our maturity and godliness, judging how good of husbands and wives we are by a book that some man or woman wrote and then when people come to us for counsel, here's what we do. Hey, read this book. Or we start saying, hey, you should do this. Rather than pointing people to Jesus, we start shooting all over each other. You should do this. You should do this. No, you should do this. Do this. And we're full of shoulds that have nothing to do. 
Yes, it's a very thinly veiled reference here. <laughs> okay? Some of the kids are like, I don't get it. Mom will tell you at home. But that is what is going on, church. When we create man-made, community-made methods to try to grow in sanctification, grow in godliness. Is this who we're going to be, church? Are we going to be a community defined by all the best steps and strategies that Christian experts and psychologists can come up with? Now, time out here for a second. Like, I'm not disparaging those books. Like, there's good common grace. There's some nuggets of wisdom in those things. I'm not saying, hey, never read a book again on parenting or marriage. There's some really good stuff out there. However, when those things become our hope, when when our ability to do all the stuff in the book becomes our hope and not the power of God in us, we bind ourselves, we enslave ourselves, we, we start to put a yoke of expectation on ourselves that God never intended. And we start running away from the true power which is found in the gospel and through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we start trying to grab things and put things in our own hands. And so church, when this happens, too often what tails it is pride and despair. Well, why can't so-and-so get with it? I, I gave them the, the, the steps. That here's the things that they can do. Why aren't they following through? Or, or despair. I'm terrible. I'm never going to be as good a parent. I'm never going to battle the sin. I'm always going to be immature. I'm never gonna, our marriage is never going to be good because we can't do the things in this book. Pride and despair. And we enslave ourselves. Not freedom. Not hope. It's not promise. It's grounding us. Are we going to be a community that gives good advice or shouts good news? Here's something else that we can do. We we can begin to sin manage. We can decide, okay, the whole thing just seems overwhelming, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick like five or six things, maybe two or three, I don't know, and we're going to decide if I nail those, I'm good. Like, like if, I, if I don't sin in one particular way, if I keep my kids in line or if I'm educating them in a particular way, if my marriage, we don't have a lot of big blow-ups, if I give enough to church, if I show up, if I serve, you know, we, we, we start to create these checklists that if we think we're good, if we do that, all the while we bury certain particular sins that are actually wrecking our souls or we're so driven by performance, we have no affection for Jesus, It's all about checking the box rather than worshiping Christ and being transformed by his grace. You see, when we take matters into our own hands, it's always going to fall short. It's always going to fall short of what God really wants to do in you. Your best conceived program, your best attempts of grabbing control of your own growth and godliness are far, 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 far less than the power of God at work in you and the transformation he wants to do in you. So we sell ourselves short, church, when we try to grab things and do it in our own power. Or what else we end up doing? We look at all the rules we think Christianity has. We look at all the the, the fighting sin and and just how it's difficult. And we go, you know what? I don't want any of it. I don't want the rules. I don't want to be legalistic. You know, grace is free. Jesus loves me. 
And so we start to minimize sin. We start to look at sin as if, hey, it's not that big a deal. It's not, you know, actually doing things to me. It's not actually affecting my marriage, affecting my parenting, affecting the way I interact with people at work, affecting my love and affection for Christ. We can minimize sin. Hey, look, that's, that's performance just in a different direction. That's taking matters into your own hands. It's just in a different direction. Or we can go really extreme and say, I'm not going to let a church or a pastor or an outdated religious book or even God tell me how to live. I'm free when I'm happy. I'm free when I get to be me and live out the desires of my heart. I'm free when I get to self-actualize. Look, friends, that's not freedom either. Because you're basing your happiness, your joy, again, on your performance. As long as you can do fill in the blank, then you'll be happy. And you end up enslaving yourself to your sin. Your sin begins to turn you toxically inward in pride and selfishness. And as we're going to see later in Galatians 5, that leads to death. That that doesn't lead to eternal life. That leads to death. That leads to judgment. That's not freedom either. The solution to legalism, the solution to heavy-handed rules and man-made rules and a propensity to try to earn God's favor is not to jettison righteousness. It's to run to Jesus. What kind of church are we going to be? And look, growing in our faith takes effort. Like grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Philippians 2.12 says to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Grace isn't opposed to effort. Look, the Christian life is not just a let go and let God. He's got it. I'm sitting back. No. The Christian life is active. We, we pour ourselves out. We live, we work, we fight. The, 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 the metaphors of the Christian life are active. Hardworking metaphors. But here's the difference. There's a difference between working in effort, trying to make promise happen, and working because promise is true. Like church, when we take matters in our own hands and try to make the promises of God happen in our own effort, that's what grace is opposed to. It's not opposed to saying the promises of God are true, yes and amen, and like Abraham, I'm going to follow him. When Jesus calls me, I'm going to follow him. And so we, we, church, effort is important. Intentionality is important. Engaging, living, going at it as Christians, it's important. But what are our methods? How are we doing that? Are we inventing our own methods? Are we relying on man-made methods? Or are we going at it through the means God himself has given us? Do you know God has given you the means to grow in your Christian life? He hasn't just said, okay, you guys figure this out as you go, and, and I'll jump in when I need to. No, he's given us his means. They're ordinary. They're, they're, they're not super exciting. They're not best, necessarily bestsellers. They're not going to get you a book deal and a, a conference gig but they're rooted in promise. They're spirit-empowered. They're things as ordinary as this. Prayer. Spending time in God's word. 
confessing sin and repenting. Gathering with God's people to worship and to sing. Living life in community. Being discipled by others and discipling others. Serving. Resting. I know, you know, Sabbath rest sounds like a little bit of legalism, but Sabbath rest is a gift to you and a means by which you grow in your faith. And here's the difference. All of those things that God gives us, they root us in promise. Over and over and over again, they take us back to the promise. Rest in the promise. Believe in the promise. Depend on the power of God. That is the kind of effort. That, those are the means by which we have great hope. And so church, let's not be passive. Let's not confuse man-made rules with pass- and, and, and pushing away man-made rules with passivity. Let us run to where the power and the promise are. Let's run to where God says, I will meet you in these things and you will grow through these things and my power will be at work in you in these things. Church, we have great hope. We have great promise. And here's what's ironic. Jerusalem should have been a place of freedom. Like, look, the temple of God was there. That's the place where God's people gathered to worship him. That's the place where their king had ruled, and one day they put hope that a king would come again and rule them. So Jerusalem should have been a place of freedom and hope. And church, this community should be a place of freedom and hope because of the gospel and because of what Christ has done. But we cannot assume. We can't just assume that that's how we are being shaped and that's how we are walking. We have to be on guard. We have to be intentional. Like like Paul warning the Galatians, we cannot be bewitched by the temptations and the enticing words of other people. Church, we, we, we need to be careful. I'm not saying we need to be fearful, but we need to be careful. Who are we going to be? Are we going to be given over to self-made rules? Given over to sin? Or are we going to be given over to promise and freedom? A community bound in slavery because we're trying to take matters into our own hands? Or a community that rests and trusts in the promise of God and the gospel? Because that's who we are. We're not a community enslaved. We're a community free. We are a community that has been born into freedom. We've been set free by Christ. This is what Paul says in verses 26 and 28, and then in 31. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. We are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. We're free. This is a truth about who we are in Christ. This has been held out for us in Jesus. We're free. We don't have to take matters into our own hands. We don't have to perform to earn God's favor. We don't have to create methods and strategies to grow in godliness. We're not part of the Jerusalem that's enslaved. We're part of something greater. We're part of the Jerusalem that is free. So Hebrews 12 has this really vivid contrast for us about two different communities. A a community that was bound to the law and this new community set free in Christ. This is what Hebrews 12, 18 through 24. 
For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This is a, a snapshot of when God came down on Mount Sinai to give Moses the law. And so God descends and it, it says there's a cloud and there's a smoke. And, and the mountain literally is set on fire. And the cloud and the smoke partly reveal the glory of God and the fire, but it's also to shield all the people from the glory of God so they don't drop dead. But there's this awesome moment and angels are with him and there's trumpets and shouting and and there's just this commotion and all the people are afraid. But this image is meant to show that God is holy. He's awesome in power, awesome in righteousness. He is good. He is just. He is beyond anything that we can wrap our minds around or our arms around. This is who God is. And when his holiness descends on the mountain, no one could touch this mountain. No one could defile this mountain, even a beast, even something common. If it touched this mountain, dead. This is who God is. And and what is going on here is it's showing that when God comes to us and confronts us in our sin, when, when what is before us is God's holiness and our sin, this is who God is. This is how we experience God. Awesome holy, powerful, terrifying, unapproachable. And if you are still in your sin, this is who God is. This is God before you because you are in your sin and judgment is over you. But but here's the sad part. For you who are in Christ, when you try to live by your performance, you end up seeing God this way still. Your heart still is postured that this is God's attitude and this is the way God presents himself to you. But this is not how we approach God. This is not who we are, church, in Christ. This is not our experience in our relationship with God. Because in Christ, we're, we're brought near to the Lord. Because of Christ, God relates to us not at a far distance, not with smoke and, and lightning and fire and, and shadow and, and cloud, but we're brought near. Here's what the other half of this passage in Hebrews 12 tells us. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn of, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood. This is a picture of a heavenly gathering. Angels, the saints who have gone on before us, God, there is celebration, there is Jesus, the one who has cleansed us. And here's what's, what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. When we gather as the people of God, yes, we're here presently, physically, we're right here, but we're caught up in the celebration that's going on in heaven. Spiritually, we are experiencing the same thing. We have been brought near to God. We've been brought near to our Father. We are in relationship with Him. We are the people of God before the throne of God, worshiping in freedom, not in terror, not in distance, not with threats of death and judgment, but with freedom, with peace, love, joy, celebration, nearness, nearness to God in one another. 
This is the community that we are. This is the community of freedom. This is what, who, who God has made us. And we're up close and personal with God. We're worshiping in this heavenly gathering, not because we took matters into our own hands, but because God took matters into his hands. Because God sent Jesus, who took on flesh, who stepped into our world and our mess and our sin and our pain. And he loved us. He healed our sickness. He took our diseases. He took our infirmities. He lived a perfect life. Like he kept God's law perfectly, both in action and attitude. He walked in our place. He kept the law when we could not. He confronted evil. He faced down evil spiritual forces and he cast out demons. He confronted corrupt religious and political leaders. He pointed to the kingdom of God. He taught us what it meant to follow Jesus, to follow him. And in the ultimate act of love, he lays down his life. He takes on the sin, the judgment, the condemnation that you and I deserve. He takes that on himself in the cross, takes on all of our sin, and he's killed, and he's buried. But then he rises in victory. He rises in victory over sin, rises in victory over Satan and evil. He rises in victory over death itself. And in rising in victory, those of us who are in Christ, the power of sin has been broken. The power of hell has been broken. The fear of death has been broken. Jesus has ascended. He's at the right hand of God. He's the resurrected and reigning king. And he's poured out his spirit on his people. That's our power, church. That's our freedom. And because of all that Christ has done, now who we are as a church, the community that he has created, it's free. No need to perform. Christ performed for us. We don't need to hide our sin. We can confess our sin because we're forgiven in Jesus. We don't have to perform for one another. We don't have to fight with one another because we're all one in Christ. We can love and serve one another. Church, imagine this. Imagine a community that's free. Imagine a community that doesn't feel it needs to perform for God, but worships him and loves him in freedom. Imagine a community that doesn't perform for one another but just loves one another, cares for one another, forgives one another, disciples one another, speaks truth to one another, pointing, all pointing each other to Jesus and finding freedom in Christ. Imagine a community that is done trying to impress people and just wants others to know Jesus. A community that isn't fearful, but is bold in proclamation. A, a community that doesn't sort of try to box out sinners and, and keep them away, but a, but a community that says, welcome. We want you to know Christ. Come experience the freedom that we have. Imagine that community, church. That's the community that Jesus bought. That's the community that Jesus has created. That's who we are. And that's who we're called to be. And here's the hope for us. We can rejoice as this passage tells us, we can rejoice because of what Christ has achieved. Look, you may feel barren spiritually. You may feel like you are stuck, stuck in your sin. Your marriage is stuck in some, in some kind of cycle of conflict. You may feel like you're stuck with your parenting, that your kids are never going to grow up and be mature. Wherever you feel stuck, Scripture says, rejoice, barren one, because God is going to do something in you. God is going to bring forth fruit. God is going to bring forth redemption and renewal and restoration. 
God's power is not going to be stopped by your circumstances, not going to be stopped by your sin. The promise of God overcomes it all. And so you have great hope. You don't have to take matters into your own hands. You can rest in promise. Church, who are we going to be? What kind of community are we going to be? A community bound in slavery because we're trying to take matters into our own hands or a community that lives in freedom because we're trusting in the promises of God. And so we worship and we celebrate the grace of God deeply. We love selflessly. We pray endlessly. We hunger for God's word. We freely confess and repent. We share life together. We love one another. We forgive one another. We point each other to Jesus. We ground each other in the identity we have in Christ. And we do this through the means of grace that he's given us. Oh, church, that's what I want to be a part of. I I hope that as we round out our study in Galatians, as we look at what it means to walk in freedom, that this freedom shapes our hearts and causes us to long for it as well. Amen.